Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I should tell you before I start, I've always stressed to you guys over and over again in the audience, there's very important things about our business. The most important thing is showing up early, okay? That's the biggest thing in the world. I talk about that all the time. Today, I completely screwed up. I emailed my guest today, who I am unbelievably excited about to interview David Zucker. I email his assistant, 1030. It's all set. We're going to make it work. Everything's fine. And then, of course, I look at my calendar and it says 1.30. I have a pitch meeting early in the morning. Same time, I realize as I'm driving, oh my God, I have completely screwed up. And I don't have uh, David Zucker's direct email or cell phone because I just there's something about just wanting to really bother people. I like to do things in a certain way where I can sometimes work with people's the people that they pay to actually do the job to do things and get them the information. And his assistant did a magnificent job. But you know, frantically emailing the guy as I'm driving down the PCH swerving back and forth canceling another meeting to be with him because I know how important it is and I know how important it, w- it was for him to to honor this commitment for me and I appreciated it so much and here I am telling the assistant that I'm late but 
the assistant, of course, probably can't get in touch with David right away. because it's really... So I rush up to the lobby. He's there. And I think he's going to be so angry at me and so mad. And he is the calmest, kindest person in the world and just really made me feel at ease in my moment of stress. And as Jay Moore once told me, don't spook the thoroughbred. And in this case, I'm not the thoroughbred. David Zucker is the thoroughbred, but he treated me like I was the thoroughbred. He treated me like everything was going to be okay. He treated me in a calm way. And I say this often in this podcast, and I never know what I'm going to say in my cold opens, but I think the thing I want to say is this. One of the most important things that you can have in your life and your business is calm. Nothing ever went wrong when you throw calm at it. Yes, there's things that would have happened negatively if you threw calm at it, but for the most part, that's not the case. It just won't normally happen. As David Zucker brings a rock from my desk that says calm on it, which I have on my desk as a paperweight, ran over and got that for me. So I just feel that way. Now, granted, if there's a fire in your apartment, I don't think calm is going to always work. You probably have to be calm and rush out as fast as you can. If there's a guy with a gun to your head and he's threatening to kill you, yes, calm, but maybe as a backup, maybe not. But for the most part, calm wins. Calm always wins. And type AAA personalities and people who are short and curt and rude and to the point and whatever, it doesn't normally work. And I think back to something that I remember, I believe it was an interview that Leslie Nielsen did one time, a great, great actor who talked about all the movies that he'd been in. And I believe he was asked, which director would you prefer to work with the most of anybody and he said David Zucker and I would imagine a lot of that had to be because he made Leslie Nielsen feel calm he made Leslie Nielsen feel safe in the choices he was making because he was working in a genre that is not an easy genre to do And we're going to talk about this later, about the kind of genre that David Zucker specializes in. But it's an amazing specialty that's very rarely seen and used. And you can count them on half a hand in the history of filmmaking, where you actually take people who act out parts in a straight way, and they become actually 10 times funnier than they would if they didn't. And the fact that Leslie Nielsen, one of the greatest actors of our generation, felt that way about David Zucker and the way that he was to me this morning when I came into this lobby with all the things that weren't right, all the things that weren't the way that he handles things and he handled with calm, I can tell you right now that we're going to have an amazing podcast Because if he had handled things in a way that most people handle things with a snide comment, a sarcastic bite at me, an attitude like, go fuck yourself, I deserve to be treated better, but he didn't. He felt it inside. 
and he held it down below and he showed me the comp. No, I'm kidding. He didn't do that. So my advice to you and the gist of this cold open would be, listen, everybody, if ever you want to send that text after somebody sends you that horrible text, stop yourself. Don't send it. Wait. Wait until you're calm. Think about what you're sending. Send a text that you could send to Mother Teresa, your grandmother, and your mother on her worst day. Same thing. If somebody says something or does something that you feel slighted or whatever, take a step back. Think about it. Be calm and handle things that way. And I can guarantee you in every area of your life, it will improve. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am honored and happy and excited to be interviewing a man that has been a part of my life and was an inspiration to me in this business, and that's David Zucker. I'm going to give him the proper introduction, but before I do, I'll just remind you guys, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so very much. I am so grateful for you guys listening and emailing me, and the feedback has been unbelievable, and millions of people out there, I don't know what happened or how it happened or why it happened, but it happened, and I'm glad that you guys are listening and enjoying it, and it's having a positive effect on you all that means a tremendous amount also if you're ever on amazon you ever want to buy something for my sake if you want to support the podcast and it doesn't cost you any money is go to the amazon banner at barrycats.com slash podcast click on it buy whatever you want and amazon takes care of this show with a few shekels for the barry cats jewish sons memorial college fund so thank you for supporting the show I appreciate it, and I'm very grateful. And now I will give David Zucker the proper introduction as he falls asleep quietly with a hot coffee in his hand. Well, I'll I'll record this, everything <laughs> you've said so far, and use it to get to sleep at night. I can just put this by my bedside. And I always started to nod off, but now that you're going to talk about my introduction, I'm going to listen. All right. Thank, thank goodness. Okay. This is a very interesting introduction, by the way, very different from the other ones I've, I've done before. David S. Zucker is an American film director and producer and screenwriter. He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Charlotte A. Lefstein and Burton C. Zucker, who was a real estate developer. He graduated from Shorewood High School, and he's married to Dr. Danielle... Ardolino Zucker, with whom he has had two children, Charles and Sarah. Zucker was raised Jewish. No shit. Uh, from both parents, David and Danielle married in May 1997, and his younger brother, Jerry, his filmmaking partner from the Zucker brothers, have a sister, Susan. 
Zucker's movies include the legendary and iconic Kentucky Fried movie in 1977, the Naked Gun series, which included Naked Gun 2 and a half, The Smell of Fear. He also did Basketball in 1998, which we're going to talk about, which was a real game, and Scary Movie 3 and its sequel, Scary Movie 4, as well as An American Carol. He co-directed several films, including the unbelievably historic Airplane in 1980 and Top Secret in 1984, along with his brother Jerry and Jim Abrams. The trio make up the Zazz team of directors. I should say Z-A-Z, but I'll say Zazz. He has also worked with Pat Proft, which whom he first teamed up on the Naked Gun show Police Squad, and Craig Mazin, writer of three of the five scary movies. Looking back on his career, as I alluded to before, in 2009, Leslie Nielsen said the best film he ever appeared in was The Naked Gun, and that Zucker was his favorite director to work with. Nielsen said of him, quote, He came to me one time and said, Leslie, I'll never make you do anything that is not funny. And he kept his word, unquote. Zaz and Proft helped develop the parody genre of films in which jokes are spit out with rapid fire using puns, physical humor, wit, and double entendres. Some of the veteran actors of Zaz's visions of movies included Lloyd Bridges, Charlie Sheen, Julie Haggerty, and Anna Ferris, as well as, of course, Leslie Nielsen. In his movie, he honors his mother often, Charlotte as she's been cast in small bit roles like one of Lucille Ball impersonator in Rat Race and Vincent Ludwig's secretary Dominique in the Naked Gun series. Zucker has stated that his dream project is a Davy Crockett biopic, and he mentioned his enthusiasm for the project during an interview in 2006 for the feature-length documentary That Guy, The Legacy of Dub Taylor. The project had its world premiere at Taylor's childhood hometown of Augusta, Georgia in 2007. Since that time, it's been a passion of David Zucker's to figure out a way to do something memorable and inspirational around the life story of Davy Crockett. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the not mad at me because I'm late, David Zucker. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. (laughs) You made it sound good. I want to do that. I want to make you sound good because you I know I need that. You know you aren't good though. What you're you you're you're extraordinary. Oh yes. Well, uh, my bottom line is just that people worship me, and that's that's all I require. I will promise I will get down on my knees okay. and hands, not hands and knees, yeah. knees and hands, because I want to make sure the hands are down last. I know we don't want to get into that. No, we don't. Yeah. That's another biopic. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Last time I saw you, I think I was moderating a panel, which I felt like I deserved to be wearing clown feet because I'm moderating a panel with you. You know, you should be moderating the panel and I should be getting you coffee, which I just did. Then you did a good job of it. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm more comfortable just being on panels and just getting asked questions and not having to, you know, be. Be, <laughs> just spilled my coffee. <laughs> Do you want me to get you a towel yeah, or a I'll wet nap? A maybe Nathan can get us a towel. I hope yeah. we have a towel. Yeah, uh, we have some Anyways, napkins I, in the drawer. I, right I kind of get excited and I start gesturing. No, the, so they 
Listen, this is, this is yeah. Anytime somebody gets excited around yeah. me is like a, this is like incredible. You know, my I I'm very proud of my daughter because she's kind of a natural clown, <laughs> and she'll do stuff like that. Anyways, I used to go. Not to, um, this isn't meant to bring you down, so please. As most people on the podcast know, I suffered a tragedy when I was younger. My wife passed away when I, uh, she was 23 and I was 26. And this guy, a comedian from Rhode Island who was an auto salesman, used to come up every Monday and he used to knock on the door and make me come out with him. You'll know where this is going in a second. And he would say, dinner and a movie. We're going to dinner and a movie. I'd say, listen, I don't, you know, his name was Ed Regine. I said, Ed, I'm just not feeling it. I just can't do it. He said, dinner and a movie. Get out. Come out now. And he would do anything to make me feel good. And every time at the movie theater, I, he'd say, could I have a large popcorn, please? I said, Ed, please don't do that. <laughs> and he'd walk down in the middle of the place with all the people, and he'd pretend to trip and popcorn just everywhere, and he'd have like five people helping him up, and there would be popcorn. All, Let me get you another popcorn. And every movie, he'd do that clown thing where he'd fall with the popcorn all over the place. Yeah, falling always seems to be funny. <laughs> yeah. And I always tell my cameraman, when I, when I start with a new cameraman, that when you ha when when the fall happens, not to follow the person down. You have the 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 faller always has to fall out of frame. People don't realize this. If you follow the person down to the the floor, it's not funny. Now, how did you learn that? You know, I, I to be honest with you, I I don't know. But it's just it just happened. I mean, we just. We, we did have a natural instinct for, for comedy, but I think we, we gradually learned how to do it just by, by trial and error. Because we, you know, we ran that, a, a, a little theater in L.A. on Pico Boulevard called Kentucky Fried Theater. And, uh, and, and we did video and live in the same show and some, some film even. So, so we just, you know, we, we learned by, and we were directing, so we just, we just learned. And so, well, what happened, like sometimes, if I, you don't mind me sort of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you a little bit here, yeah. sometimes when you're not directing, some, well, you are directing, but there's a live thing, and somebody falls, like Chevy Chase did, not out of frame, it's still funny, you know? Well, that's a different thing, because they were doing Saturday Night Live, for instance, and that's a that's a stage show. It's It's more, it's television, and so... The rules are different. Our rules, you know, what we do is purely for for movies. I want to talk about your rules, but I and I, I want to talk about so many things, and there's so many amazing stories you have. And again, I'm so grateful that you're here and spilling coffee all over yourself on a regular basis. Yeah, it's very careful. important. I, I've never had somebody grab the coffee stronger than they grab the microphone. This is good. Yeah. That coffee is brewed with the temperature of the sun. Yeah, but by the time it got up here, it wasn't that hot. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. Yeah, we, we, we packed in a nice when we brought it up here. So I want to go way back, if you don't mind. Yeah. We're way, 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 way back to Wisconsin, where you grew up. Right. And, uh, and what your family dynamic was like and what was happening in your neighborhood and what was the first inspiration for you and your brother to want to be in the entertainment business well i think you know our life was pretty much leave it to beaver 
Jerry and I were Beaver and Wally, and you know we just lived in a nice suburb, and it was Milwaukee. And but people were funny in my high school, and I mean there were there were five or six guys in my class who were funnier than I was, but they just were able to find jobs. <laughs> graduated, and so and and Jerry, one of uh, you know, Jerry, would, you know, was the class clown of, of his classes too, and. One of his teachers even said, Zucker, someday I'm going to pay to see you. But for, for right now, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, so it, was, it was like that in our high school. It wasn't a dangerous high school. We weren't physically in danger, but it was kill or be killed as far as, you know, verbally, you know, just verbal assaults. You know, everybody was, was ripping on each other. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of had to to get into that but I wasn't I wasn't the funniest one and and I don't think Jerry was either so but we just and then Jim Abrams our partner was four years ahead of us in the same high school and in fact our fathers were business partners uh Abrahams and Zucker real estate wow and our mothers were friends our sisters were college roommates so the families were really really close and so after college well, well, in college, Jerry and I made some student films, and you know they they got a lot of attention because the professor of my my class, which was Introduction to Radio, Television, Film, or or Communications as it is now, um, saw that he was shown my ten minute short in that I did for my study section, and he showed it for the entire six hundred seat lecture. And Jerry and I were hooked because we made this big audience laugh while everybody else was doing these esoteric, you know, kind of, you know, combinations of light and shooting camera angles that were from under tables. And it was just and Jerry and I just did funny. So talk about how you came up with the idea for that short, what the short was, if you acted in it or not, and and how you what films you studied on television or in the movies to know how to, where to put the camera and how to, how to make your first short film. Cause back then, you know, right now you can make films with your iPhone. Uh, but back then you have to have a film camera, right? It was a super, super eight camera, which uh, like you know, the Zabruder film, yeah, which they sent us. Uh, who's which they gave us, who's know, they, uh, the, the, uh, the class, you know, the, the, the university, one of those that you hold like a handle and it's uh yeah it was yeah one of those Kodak you know Super 8 or Canon Super 8 cameras and that's what we used and I actually used my dad's camera cuz it was better than the school cameras that they gave us and you know we we I think we learned kind of the this was not USC or UCLA it was University of Wisconsin and uh, so, but we, I think we learned rudimentary, you know, camera angles, things like that. But I, I, I did a, a, a movie um, of, uh, it, it was a guy who, who took LSD. And this was, you know, right in the middle of all that drug era. And, so you were, you, you. And, and Vietnam War protests. So you had taken LSD so you knew what it was like. Actually, no. No, I just, I, I pretty much was on the sidelines. You know, we would, we would, we would smoke joints, you know, but it was only on weekends. We never, never got into, to drugs. Even out here, we were not, not into any, any drugs. But we did, you know, we just, it was like drinking wine on the weekends. And so we did this, uh, we did this. Uh, I had this idea that Jerry would take LSD, 
and and then look at some water and then suddenly have this overwhelming urge to pee. And so he runs all over the campus uh, seeing nothing but water fountains <laughs> and ends up climbing up the Statue of Lincoln, which is right in front of the main Bascom Hall on on Bascom Hill there. Uh, and, and he pees off the statue. And that was it. But it was funny. And and actually, and strangely enough, Jerry was not my first choice for the for the actor. I asked I asked a couple of guys from the Dish Crew that I was I worked. Was uh, he mad? Job. Was he mad at you for not asking? No, he we didn't know anything, and Jerry didn't know anything. So Jerry was just glad that you know he was happy to do it, and so that was it. Really turned out to be our first real collaboration. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So you direct your brother. I direct Jim brother. Abrams is not involved in that. He was not involved. So, But you direct your brother, and he sees in front of 600 people that he's killing yeah, as an actor. He's killing, yeah. Does he think, hey, I better forget this directing thing or no, this no, producing no, Jerry, thing I want to act? Jerry had not a thought of, like, I'm a great actor. No, he no, he, he thought like me. We, we had done this thing that made people laugh. And I, I don't think... Jerry ever, you know, attributed anything to his acting. However, in Kentucky Fried Theater, Jerry was great. I mean, he was just, he was a natural performer, as was Dick Chudnow, our other performer. Okay, but so you're in Wisconsin, you graduate. When do you decide you're going to move to L.A., and how does that, how do you make oh, that move? Well, that, that took a while. After, after graduation, I applied for jobs in the movie industry, with such that it was in, in Milwaukee at the time, which was really some advertising agencies and TV stations. I went to Chicago and applied at some places, even as far as Indianapolis. But I, I, was, I, I, didn't, I didn't find any, any takers. So my dad offered me a job to work uh, for him. He was building an office building. He was in commercial real estate. And so I became his construction expediter for a year while Jerry was still uh, doing his, in his junior year at, at the UW. And uh, so uh, around that time, uh, my dad offered me 
some videotape equipment. At that point, they were huge video decks, half-inch reel-to-reel decks, uh, and and with a big camera that you put over your shoulder. Now, for those of you who don't know and will never remember this, the formats back 25 or 30 years ago for news and television, believe it or not, they used one-inch tape. Yeah, this was, and this was the first home video, which was half-inch tape. Yeah, and so I believe three-quarter inch was the next format that was in, and then half-inch was actually a format before VHS. Before VHS, which was a cassette. This was reel-to-reel on a, a huge deck that was not portable. And that's that. I think that first video came out probably in 67, and a guy named Ken Shapiro started a he he did a an hour show called Channel One with Chevy Chase and someone named Lane Sarazen, and this was like the first counterculture video, and they did it in the village in uh, in in New York, Greenwich Village. Yeah, Greenwich Village, and they and they and they charge money for people to go in and see this videotape stuff, and so. It was 1971 when I went down to visit a girlfriend in Chicago and there was an offshoot of Channel One called Void Where Prohibited by Law. And they had a similar thing in Newtown in Chicago where you go up some steps, it was in a loft, uh, a huge waterbed in the middle of a room with a Coke machine at one end and the TV monitor at the other and they charged money. to. And I just, this was an epiphany for me. And I said, well, we can do this. And it was, you know, like an hour of mostly scatological humor. And I, I wonder if I would think it was funny today, but I, I laughed all the way through. And I, I think the girl I was with probably did not laugh very much. But I drove straight to Madison where Jerry was a junior. Or, or maybe it was his senior year. Yeah, his senior year. And I said, oh, we got to do this. We just, you know, this is what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we'll start a theater and we'll, we can, we can do uh, a videotape with this, with this equipment that my dad could, could get us for nothing. And which I had turned down at first saying, what can I do with video? I'm a, I want to be a film director. So uh, we did that. We started the theater with, we got a Jim Abrams and another fellow named Dick Chudnow. And uh, the four of us, I think we invested, I don't know, for $800, we, we started this theater in so, the back of a bookstore. So you started the theater in the back of a bookstore. In, Where was in it? Madison, in Madison. In Madison. On the campus, just blocks from the campus. And that was an immediate hit, and it was, it was great. And we did that for that whole, that whole school year. So explain how it worked. Did you operate seven nights a week, one night a week? How did it oh, operate? No, we, this was just Friday and Saturday. So Friday and Saturday. What, just give me an example of uh, what would happen. Friday and Saturday, I imagine it would be the same show Friday and the same show Saturday. Yeah. But explain to me what the show would be from start to finish and, and briefly. Well, they were blackout sketches. And it was uh, about, you know, almost an hour and a half. We had an intermission. Uh, there was a stage, there were 70 seats. And on the stage, there was a video monitor. And we did certain segments where, like, we'd show 10 minutes of 
uh, commercial spoofs. And then on stage, we would do sketches, you know, like you'd see on... Groundlings. Yeah. Or did you bring your student film out and play that? No, we never did for that. No, we just... What, what we had in, in film was, like, we did a spoof of The Godfather, um, you know, the scene where the guy wakes up with the horse's head in the bed, mm -hmm. recruited my uncle, and he wakes up, and it's a picture of... Uh, David and Julie Eisenhower. To give you an idea of how long ago this was, you'd have to explain who David and Julie Eisenhower were. And but they were like the kind of the stodgy, not very cool couple. And so, and the guy, you know, is screaming that he's that somebody put this picture. In his bed. I mean, that was one of the things we did on on film. I want to know how your improvisational mind works. I want you to pretend. That you're recreating that short sketch on film right now. You're going in this afternoon to do it. What would be in the bed in place of the horse's head today? Oh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know off the top of my head? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, so keep going. This is amazing. So, um, and, 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 and one of the sketches we did was... Um, uh, a couple uh, watching the TV monitor and starting to make out, and they're watching the news. And they get more and more into their lovemaking and hot and heavy, and the newscaster starts getting distracted from this <laughs> news and looking at this. So we, this is a thing, sketch we later did, we put in Kentucky, Kentucky Fried Friday. Movie. But we did this live on stage, and it was great because they were actually watching a TV monitor and so the guys, the, you know, the, the newscasters, the, you know, the tech guys come in and start walking. It ends up in a huge orgasm. And, uh, you know, when I think back of this, I think of my mom and dad coming to see the show. <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, I can't believe we did this. But uh, what did they, they say after it. the show? They loved it. You know, they loved the show. And, you know, yeah. And also, you know, Aunt B and Uncle Maury came to see the show. My my grandmother's brother and sister. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And we and just it wasn't talked about how sexually perverse the show was, but it was it was getting a lot of laughs, and it was very successful. And all that we could only charge a dollar a ticket admission. Why? Because it just that was like all the traffic. <laughs> would bear uh, bear in mind this was 1971 uh gas was 25 cents a gallon you know you could buy a huge house in beverly hills for you know ninety thousand dollars this was it was different it was a different world and so we decided we had to we should move out to if we're if we're this good people like us that much we should move to LA and get onto the Tonight Show, and then we'd be, you know, fame and fortune would would follow. So the shows in the back of the bookstore were selling out every yeah. week. And yeah. did you have to move to a different venue, or you just said we're going to LA? We got, we got to go to LA. We can't. We could stay in Madison forever and just die there, and then be, and we could be sixty years old and still on stage, you know, earning a dollar a week or something. So so we, we loaded up a U-Haul truck and moved the show and uh, uh, and a, a couple of the people from the troupe 
to to L.A. So there were six of us. We got to but where'd LA. you get the money to do that? Well, it didn't take that much money. We actually we it was an investment of twelve thousand dollars, and we each chipped in three. And and uh, but back then twelve thousand then is like one hundred twenty thousand yeah, today. It was yeah, it was more <laughs> certainly more than it is today, but. But you know, we—it was a great adventure. So you found the theater here. Where did you found find the place? I I went out in the this during the spring break before June uh, to find a theater. And actually, we were looking in San Francisco and L.A. And I happened—I found an old warehouse on Pico Boulevard that had a uh, lo and behold, it had uh, apartments up above, so we could actually. Get this place plus the living space for three hundred dollars a month. Wow! And so, and that was a tremendous break. How many apartments were above? There were uh, we we had uh, there were three bedrooms and the equivalent of three bedrooms if we used the living room for one of the bedrooms. So, who lived upstairs? Uh, Jim and Jerry and I lived upstairs, and Dick. I think Dick lived there too. Yeah, we all four of us lived. And you were equal partners in equal the theater. Partners, and we would hammer and nail and build this theater out of one of the the larger rooms in the warehouse by day, and then uh, Jim would cook, uh, and Jim would knock off at about three, go and buy a roast, and he'd cook, and we'd eat out on the deck, which was uh, on the roof. What was the goal of how big you wanted the theater to be? Well, this was a. Uh, well, it was a 130-seat theater by now, and what we wanted to do is attract the attention of The Tonight Show and get on The Tonight Show. That was the goal. Okay, so that was your goal. Yeah. Why did you decide the name of the Kentucky Fried Theater? Where did that well, name come from, and how did it come yeah, about? Yeah, that was in, back in Madison, we, you know, we needed to name the theater, and... Uh, we had an ad deadline that we had to, if we we're going to put a, an ad in in time to get any kind of uh, publicity for the opening, we needed to get this, uh, this the name of the theater, and we had no name. And so we, we were thinking of dozens and dozens of names ending in theater, and then and we were getting exhausted, and we were at a big boy restaurant in... in a Bob's in, uh, Big Boy. Bob's Big Boy. And... Uh, we looked across the street and there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant and someone said, you know, Kentucky Fried Theater. And everybody laughed like that was a stupid name. We'd never use it because it was just nutty. And and so somebody said, you know, if we had any guts at all, that's what we would name it. And so we did. And that, you know, and that's that's what it became. Did Colonel Sanders ever try to sue you? Uh, no, because uh, there there was somebody suggested that. There, there was something there, but but uh, they just they they thought it was decided that if we weren't selling food, really, that our main business was not selling chicken, it was okay. But down the street from on Pico, from the Kentucky Fried Theater, um, was a Kentucky Fried Chicken place, and we talked to someone there, and they they had gotten some calls there that were confused people because we called our first show vegetables and just for no reason and somebody called the kentucky fried chicken place saying uh do you have vegetables <laughs> and they said no but we have chicken <laughs> or something you know we we have coleslaw something you know. so uh, that was the, the the closest anything came to 
<clears throat> being an issue, and it never became an issue. So you decide to open sometime in the mid-70s, I guess, or early well, 70s? we opened the show in L.A. in uh, October of 1972. Got it. And how much of the content were sketches and short films that you had done throughout your time in Wisconsin? Did you open up with your, your standard strong things, or did you do all new stuff? We had, uh, we had done two shows in Madison called Vegetables and then The Entire History of the Whole World, way, way before Mel Brooks did the movie. And we combined the best of those shows and then called it Vegetables for the first show in L.A., and uh, very little of it was filmed, but we, we had, we had um, when people came in to, to sit down, there were projected movies in loops uh, of two, two of us playing Frisbee with, you know, Jerry and I played Frisbee with Dick and Jim on the other side so that you could, it actually appeared like, if you were if you were looking, you couldn't look at both ends at the same time. And then on a loop at this on the stage on the stage screen, there was an audience, like a crowd, with their heads going right to left, and right to left. And so that that kind of got people in the mood. It was pretty. We did all sorts of stuff. There was uh, at at intermission. I mean, there there at a certain point, the lights went up and a phone came down from the ceiling and it was ringing. And an audience member had to pick it up. And we told the person, uh, just announce to the audience that there will be a 10-minute intermission. And they had to do that. And, then, and so that's like all these kind of weird things. And so you start in yeah. 72. And how long before you start seeing what happened in Wisconsin on Pico Boulevard in oh, Los it Angeles? Was, it was almost immediate. We, You know, the first couple of weekends were were uh, difficult because it was it was sparse because we needed to get word of mouth going so the first audience there were like 20 people and we were it was you know if you've ever performed you know you you really, it's like you can't perform a whole show for 20 people so to break the ice we gave them a tour of the theater beforehand <laughs> and a tour of the upstairs uh, living quarters <laughs> and we conducted a tour and then but by the second weekend we were packed it was packed eight o'clock and eight o'clock shows uh friday and saturday and then uh there was pressure in the in the ensuing weeks uh for for you know more people uh, we're, we're getting turned away. So we added shows at 10 PM, uh, on Friday and Saturday. And then we added Thursday shows and Sunday shows. And so it was filled. The and whole time. every week you did the same show. And then the next week you did a different show or you just no, kept the same, same show. The show. Yeah. We were pretty lazy and we didn't want to add new material. And we had so much great material and it was stuff that Nobody had ever seen before this this kind of style. So people would come back over and over again people to see the same. People would come back and, and not only bring their friends, but guys would say that they always got laid as a result of going to Kentucky Fried Theater. I don't know why. Maybe it was because everything, there was nothing that wasn't discussed. I mean, it really broke the ice, evidently. That's fantastic yeah. to know that you were that for so many people. I was wondering we if you that, could write yes. a show for me. <laughs> we'll, we can try, but yeah. <laughs> I could use a little help. Uh, okay. So 
you do this, your whole goal is to get noticed by The Tonight Show, but they don't notice you. Yes, they did. When did they notice you? About the second month. And then what happened? Well, they they invited us over to the uh, over to Tonight Show studio, you know, to NBC Studios for an audition. Now, what kind of audition? Well, we we were supposed to do a couple, few of our sketches. We did like you know five or six sketches, and together with two other groups, one was uh, called the Committee, and one was called the Pitchell Players. And uh, so we, you know, we did great in the audition and they invited us to be on the show. And Jim so, we, McCau- so Jim McCauley saw it and he invited you. And so they invite you well, to be we, on the show. Yeah, I remember meeting Peter. And so, the, so we went on to the Tonight Show. And what year was that? This was in 72. Okay. So, you, so, so uh, take me back. So it's you, Jim, Jerry, uh, Jerry, and who else? Dick. Dick. And um, Lisa Davis. And Steven Stucker. Now, I've never known of a sketch group being on The Tonight Show since I've been watching. Yeah, they they did. They didn't, you know, after after that, they I guess that was an early 70s kind of thing. They had a they had a group on there called the Ace Trucking Company. Have you ever heard of them? Yes. Yeah. And they were the the resident Tonight Show group. And we thought, well, we're much better than they they are. And so we what do you, were nothing if not headstrongly confident. So what do you decide to do? You only have like five to seven minutes. What right, do you decide no, so to we do? Did, we did a sketch that uh, called Adam and Eve where, you know, Dick and Lisa did that. Always a big crowd pleaser. And then we did Stucker doing the fountain and uh, Jerry doing a fried egg. And... Uh, we did what we called the the right guard ballet, <laughs> where we spray each other. With, you know, it was it was sketch stuff. And how did it go? Um, not overwhelming because you know the the reaction to the live show, the live in the studio audience was great. They they loved it. However, on TV, it just it didn't come off. I don't think we were as good as the Ace Trucking Company. <laughs> and so it was interesting. Evidently, we were not this performing group. We were, I mean, we were not as great as we thought we were in in terms of, you know, being like, I think the Ace Trucking Company was better. <laughs> and when you finished your performance, you know, Johnny either didn't do anything, he went like this with the OK symbol, or he Wait a minute. well this did not apply because um we were uh, Johnny Carson introduced us and he said and a new group called Kentucky Fried Theater and everything and so but Mickey Rooney talked too long and in those days people got bumped now nobody ever gets bumped really uh and so we we were on the next night so he bumped and you the first night in Milwaukee stayed up till all hours for nothing and then we had to wait till next night when Joey Bishop was the the guest host. And oh, so you didn't get Johnny. We didn't get Johnny. Johnny never saw us. So Joey Bishop introduces us, and we you know we did our thing, and then you know we have the uh, we have the video of the whole thing, and you can see after we're done, Joey Bishop with this bewildered expression on his face, pl- applauding half heartedly. <laughs> 
So and he's and, muttering under his breath. And, and Ace we, Trucking Company yeah, is much and, better and than these guys. Where is he looking at his watch? Saying, "How long till we get Ace Trucking Company back?" <laughs> and so and, and 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 people in Milwaukee, you know, and people would say, you know, when when we would go back there months later, I saw you guys in the Tonight Show. Yeah. God, it was it was horrible. So, and then we we did one more. We had we did another sh- a second show after uh, you did another Tonight Show. Of, no, no, yeah, we did we did another Tonight Show, but it was with after we had recast the Kentucky Fried Theater show. We did a we did a we wanted to recast the show so that we could write a movie, and and we it, this was where uh, Pat Prof, Bo Capital, Mallory Sandler, and Steve Stucker, the four of them, did the show. And and we and we called the show My Nose just so that our weekly listing in the L.A. Times calendar section would say My Nose runs continuously. So you know, a little, a little <laughs> cleverness. It's just so stupid. And so, and, uh, and 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 we recast the show, and uh, and then the, those four were on the Tonight Show, and it was. Again, it was okay. I think it was okay, but not, not great. We were not. We knew we were not going to become. So your a biggest, your group. biggest goal was to get on the Tonight Show, yeah, and then and you get on the Tonight Show, and you realize, uh, yeah, no, yeah, it was a disappointment. So we, and the theater was going nowhere. You know, Fox Studios was two blocks away, yet no one from Fox ever came to see the show. Why do you say the theater was going nowhere? Because it was just, we were the proud operators of a successful small comedy theater. And that was where it was going to go. Unless unless we got out ourselves. So what was your next no step to get? come and get us. What? was your next step to get out? We wrote a movie. We, you know, we recast the show. And so Bo and Mallory and, uh, and uh, Stucker... And Pat Proft were, did the show. Now that's got to be difficult because you some people come out from Wisconsin, but also you come here to LA. You you find a group of people. They give their heart and soul to it, hours and hours. And then now, when you're about to take things to the next level, you realize you know these people aren't good enough to be the way we want this to be. We have to hire people who are going to be better at what they do. If they were great enough for you to want to see them on film, if your vision made it to the theater, then they would have stayed in the project. Well, it was—I mean, we just didn't want to even operate a small theater. We just—we we wanted to be in the movies. We by then we were seeing Woody Allen movies and Mel Brooks movies, and we thought we can do that. I mean that's the whole thing of it. You see what's there, and you you have to either you either have the self confidence to say I can do that. It's my turn now, or you just you look up to these people and worship them, uh, and say, "Oh my God, they're amazing!" I just want to wait to go to see the next Woody Allen movie. So, but you know, we we just had we were always very confident, very headstrong, and. We we thought we could do it, and we had our own style, and we knew that we were doing something completely different than what Mel or Woody were doing, and you know, just people hadn't seen it yet. So we wrote Airplane in the in the up in our apartment above the theater during the day. Wait, so 
you wrote Airplane before Kentucky Fried Movie? That's correct. Many people don't know this. Wow, I didn't know that. We wrote Airplane first. Now, at the time you wrote Airplane, and at the time you were writing these sketches for the Kentucky Fried Theater, was there anything that existed in film and television that utilized this style that you have basically has be, has become your lane and is known for your you being your lane for your entire career was there ever any like you know how you can point back in horror you see the cyclops and you see these things what was there ever anything in 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 black and white or even silent movies or something where they utilized this style or is this a style that was never utilized before you never saw before anywhere it was the latter never saw before anywhere i mean our people ask us all the time, you know, what were your influences? And, we, you know, we say, you know, Woody Allen and the Marx Brothers. But more than that, it was serious movies. You know, it was those straight black and white movies, which we thought were hilarious. It was around that time after we had, you know, thought of the idea, well, we should write a movie, that we met John Landis. And... I had seen John Landis. He he appeared on the Tonight Show because he had done a uh, a movie called Schlock, and he did it with Family Money. And I was amazed that this, you know, I don't know, he's probably a twenty five or twenty six year old who had done a movie. And so I called him up, and, and there was also an article in the L.A. Times about him uh, having been this young director who did a movie. So I I called him up and invited him to see the, the theater. And so he came to see the theater, and we arranged to have lunch at the Hamburger Hamlet in Culver City on Sepulveda. And I don't know if it's still there, but because uh, we wanted to pick his brain about how he did a movie. And so he said, first, you need a script. And, uh, and we said, well, we know, but, you know, what does one look like? And this is how green we were. And so he went out to his car and got a, a sample script, and it was called American Werewolf in London. <laughs> and, you know, wait years and years, of course, before it was ever made. But he said, here, I have this copy. Use this. And so that that's how we learned, you know, how to do the slug lines and how the dialogue is to be formatted and everything. So, so Sid Field hadn't <laughs> written this book screenplay by that point. No, no, no one had had done anything and uh in fact saturday night live was yet to be thought of in fact um lauren michaels and brought dick ebersall to kentucky fried theater because lauren was trying to sell this idea of doing this saturday night live show on national tv to ebersall and so he takes him to kentucky fried theater and said this is what i want to do on national tv and then I guess Ebersol got it, and so that that we became the start of of Saturday Night Live. Now we had wow. we already met Chevy Chase, and who's the guy who did the uh, the best in show that Christopher Guest? Chris Guest, who were friends of Ken Shapiro, because we met Ken Shapiro when he was. When we came out to L.A., Ken Shapiro showed up at our show uh, one night. And so 
and we, you know, we met him. We and what was Ken doing at the time? He was working on his movie Groove to the movie of Groove Tube. Yeah. And uh, did I even mention that that was uh, Channel One was Groove Tube? That's what that's what Ken Shapiro, that's what it was called. So he was doing a movie of Groove Tube, and uh, and and we thought Chevy was really funny because he had he was in Groove Tube, and he wanted to be in our show, and we said, well. You know, we'd love to have you in it, but we we have to wait till you know somebody quits because we we didn't want to fire the guy that we had. There was a guy named Jesse Emmett who was you know funny, but he, he was not Chevy Chase. But uh, anyway, so then in around '75, uh, I called Chevy because Jesse left the show, and I said, "Well, we've got an opening now." He said, "Well, I'm going to New York. I'd love to, but I'm going to New York to do this new show." And so, and the rest is history, of course. But uh, and Lore never auditioned any of your people for Saturday Night Live. No, and we thought at the time when Lauren was there that, hey, this is he's going to audition us, and we'll be on this national show, or hired as writers or something. But but they, they didn't. But that's that's okay. He he. In fact, most of my information on this comes from a book that there's a book on Saturday Night Live. A cu- there's a couple of books which tell this story about uh, Lauren Michaels taking uh, Ebersol and his, and and Lauren's wife, or either his wife or his girlfriend, Rosie Schuster, to Kentucky Fried Theater, and uh, Ebersol was trying to hit on Rosie <laughs> and didn't know that she was either. I don't know if they were married or. It was a girlfriend, but that did was, they introduce themselves the after the show? Then later, yeah, to his great embarrassment. No, 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 no. Oh, I see. No, no. I, you mean to us? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. We knew they were there, and they they said hello, and we even did a a little. Um, it was a we took a little uh, um, color film sound Kodak film of it because we would we would uh, film things or video and then send it back to my mom and dad in Milwaukee as a kind of a, this is the news. And so, and Jerry narrated said, this is Lauren Michaels here with Rosie Schuster and Dick Ebersol. They're here from New York and blah, blah, blah. So awesome. And so you write airplane and then you, so you write it, you get it all paginated the right way and structured the right way. And, you don't write Kentucky Fried Movie, although you have it technically written. It's just not in script form. Right, not in script form. And and so you, what do you do with Airplane? Well, do you f- try to find an agent? What do you What well, do you do? Um, it, it, we were um, John Landis was going to direct. We wanted John to direct Airplane, and, because we didn't. We weren't directors yet. He was a real director, and and Bob Weiss, our other friend, uh, would produce it. And so I think we. We tried to, I don't think we even had an agent at the time. We just, I think we, Landis and Weiss took it to some studios, but it was turned down everywhere. And then, and that that took about a year to write it and take it around and get turned down. So Landis then said, why don't you guys make a movie of your theater? And that's what became Kentucky Fried Theater. Now let's let's just talk about the writing a movie in this genre and it, it, do you have a specific name that you call this genre that everybody calls it 
No. I don't, think, I don't know. Spoof? And, I don't know. That's. I mean, they just call it spoof. Spoof. The but, spoof genre. Okay, so what I wanted to yeah. ask you was this. Yeah. So much of what is laughter on the screen is expression. Now, granted... Yes, there's you know the guy in the whatever the movie airplane the 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 tall guy who's always out of frame and the banana falls down the table. Obviously, that when written on the page is funny. But was it always funny on the page because there was so much expression and so much? Well, it wasn't so much expression, but basically, you know, we set up familiar situations like you like you have in these hard-hitting, serious movies. Now, we based Airplane on a 1957 black-and-white movie called Zero Hour. Did you did you know that? Because you can Google Zero Hour and Airplane, and people have created these scene-for-scene uh, juxtapositions of the, of the two movies. And so we really... A lot of Airplane is just copies of these serious scenes... And you want to and you want to know something? I thought it was a parody of Airport. It was in some part. It was we we drew sketches from airplane scenes from Air, Airport and Airport seventy five, as well as you know some some lesser known movies. There were some other black and white uh, airliner and trouble movies. Like uh, there was one called Crash Landing, uh, and it was it was a genre. It was like a pre disaster genre of the fifties. And then it came more full-blown disaster genre in the 70s. Got it. So everyone passes on airplane. You decide, hey, fuck it. Let's try to get this Kentucky Fried. Right, and we hadn't really gotten to the studios yet. We weren't of a level where we could even get an agent to read it. So Landis suggests, why don't you do a movie of your show? And so we we wrote the script to Kentucky Fried Theater. This is an extraordinary story, everybody. So if you're listening and you want to know what can happen from if you have a dollar and a dream, listen up. I'm not even going to really try to interrupt him here about how it happened, how he got the financing, how he got it up and running, and what happened to get the rest of the financing to get the movie done and out there because it's really an incredible story of how you have literally a version that's probably twenty five or $35,000 that's 10 minutes long and then turns into a movie that does millions and millions and millions of dollars and becomes a spark plug for my generation of college kids of the kind of kind of movie that we wanted to see. Well, it was, I mean, we had the script, we wrote the script and we just got nowhere with it. And we, we were meeting with, we ended up in the home of some real estate developer who said, I can, I can finance this. And so, but, but he never really, he, then he said, I want to get my, I don't want to do the whole thing myself because we got the budget. We did the budget for him. And the budget was, I don't know, 600000 So he says, I can't do the whole thing. I want to get my neighbors in it. So, but they want to know that you guys can actually produce this. So we want to know if your boy Landis here can direct and if Weiss can produce. 
they they need a sample, so let's do ten minutes of it, and um, and I'll pay for it, and uh, and I can show this to them. And so we thought that was a that was a great idea. So go go budget the write and budget the ten minutes. So we picked out four sketches from Kentucky Fried Movie. What were the four? Uh, it was the uh, assassination game, uh, zinc oxide, Cleopatra Schwartz, and the newscast. So, and we thought those were most representative of what the movie was. And so we we put those together, had it budgeted. So then the budget came out to I don't know, I, I think it was in the high twenties, twenty, let's say 28,000. So we take it back to them and we're all excited about this. We thought, what a great idea this is. Once they see this 10 minutes, the neighbors will just, they'll shower us with money. So he says, uh, okay, budget 28,000. And these are the sketches. Uh, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. And he said, "No, you, you're not going to do it." And he said, "No, and I'm I'm really not interested in in investing the you know the six hundred thousand dollars either." So he's not going to do anything. It was just a no. So, I mean, it's one of those you know moments that you always remember. You know, like where you were during OJ's Bronco chase. And so we, I'm sure you remember that more than anybody else. Yeah, so, I, you know, I directed the most famous murderer of the 20th century. Anyways, back to Kentucky Fried Movie. Uh, we we leave his house and we're just we're just crushed. It's like, and we get into the car and it's like we're back to square one. And then, but on the car ride, we're we're thinking, you know, if this was worth it for a stranger to invest 28,000 um why wouldn't it be worth it for us to do it if it's if we thought it was so such a great idea to do the 10 minutes short why don't we do that we can do this we can put up the money and my mom and dad will help out and so that's what we did and we you know we produced this we directed these these four sketches our audience should know that somebody who's retiring this week was a famous person who auditioned for this movie. Oh, yeah. This was up for the feature, David Letterman. That's right. One of, one of my big regrets that, I mean, no one cares about, but I, it just is always kind of, I, you know, I just wince when I think about it. But we picked another guy. <laughs> 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 That's okay. And Letterman was so funny and so good in the newscast. We even used some of the lines that he made up in, in, in his audition. He was so brilliant and so funny. But, you know, later, you know, we kind of became friends and, you know, we joked about it and we appeared on his show once and, you know, and showed the and showed the audition. Well, actually, his audition for Airplane we showed. Anyways, but... Um, so okay, we, so we decided to do this this uh, short, the ten minutes short ourselves. And by the way, by that time we were not four. There were not four of us. Chud now left. He left the the show in seventy two. Not e after not even a full year. So it was three partners. The whole, the whole uh, Kentucky Fried Theater thing was mainly done by the three of us, Jim and Jerry and I. So we so we and we borrowed my 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 mom and dad put in ten. Jerry and Jim and I put in each five, 
and we did the 10 minutes and then Landis and Weiss took it around to all the studios and we were turned down again. So it was still, you know, so we had this, we were out 5,000 bucks a piece, which was huge for us. And so we thought, Ay, we had this, this $30,000 white elephant and at least we wanted to see what the reaction was in front of a live audience. So we took it to uh, Kim Jorgensen, who was the uh, the the head of uh, it was it was uh, well New Art Theater, the Fox Venice, these repertory booking. It was landmark theaters, mm-hmm. and Kim is it, it coincidentally was from Milwaukee, and so we met him there in the afternoon, and he wanted to see it before showing it on Saturday night. And so uh, we showed it to him. He fell out of his chair laughing and loved it. He said, this is great. Where, where have you taken this? And we said, well, we took it to the studios. And he said, don't take it to the studios. They'll, they'll never understand this stuff. Uh, I could get you the financing. Give me two weeks. I can find the financing for you uh, from my friends. From you know, I'll get it for you. The 600000 We thought, more bullshit. We had just heard so much of this stuff. Now, before I go, the four sketches that you shot in the 10 minutes, if you did do the movie, would it be assumed that that 10 minutes has already been shot right, and you put sh- that back in the movie, you yes. wouldn't have to reshoot that? Right. We shot it in 35 millimeter. Got it. Okay. So that it would, no money was wasted, believe me. Got it. Uh, and gas had gone up to like uh, 90 cents a gallon by that time. So, you know, money was worth something. And so, uh, you know, we, and, and then it, true to his word, Kim Jorgensen uh, got the financing for us two weeks later from his exhibitor friends in San Francisco who showed the 10 minutes in their theaters. I mean, the studios would never think to do that or anything. Yeah, I had heard yeah. that the the ten minutes, this person helped you get it in front of like as a pre short before certain movies yeah. in certain theaters in San Francisco right. only. Was it one or two theaters in San Francisco that did it? I don't I don't remember. It but people were too. going crazy for it. People and, laughed and, and, as they did that night at the New Art when we showed. Yeah, it. and so, and I believe if I'm not mistaken, that convinced the investor a hundred percent to put in the money. Right, and so we just had the money. Like that, $670,000. And so Landis directs, Weiss produces. Uh, Jerry and Jim and I went in as executive producers. It was now, first, why were you executive producers when you guys were the driving force behind the project? Why weren't you capital P producers? We were, I think. I mean, we were, oh, pro- produced by? Yeah. I mean, you know, we never cared about the credits. It's like, you know, Bob Weiss was the line producer. So we just, we didn't care about producing and in fact i've never cared about being a producer okay let's talk a business thing for a second okay all right because i think this is important for our audience so you get the money from the investor what does the investor want for his six hundred and seventy thousand dollars so the movie let's just say movie gets made first six hundred and seventy thousand comes in the investor gets that then what was the deal, do you remember, that you made with this investor for every dollar after that? And how was it split between you, your brother, Jim Abrams, and um, um, Landis and uh, Weiss. Weiss? Well, I don't remember what the split was exactly or what the deal was, but we 
Uh, you know, the thing made its money back in the first. No, I know, but you weren't so expecting that. We so, well, actually, we were. We, we we always were very headstrong. Again, we always expected whatever we did to be a hit because we we kept telling people, "This is great. This script is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. You got to do this. It's going to be a big hit." And we we did believe it. So we, okay, weren't, so we were never surprised. But all right, so it's yeah. going. He finances you. You shoot the movie, and then you have a movie, but no one's bought it yet. How do you get it distributed? Well, th- th- this was it was financed by United Artists Theater Circuit. It was so in other words, distributed. So they already just put it in their yeah, theaters. In their theater. So when it opened, how yeah. many theaters did it open in? I you know I don't I don't know I mean now a I guess a typical release is like eighteen thousand theaters or something or or eighteen hundred so it's an initial eighteen hundred theaters I guess I, I but they opened it in I don't know six hundred theaters whatever and whatever. so it's an initial run yeah, it initial made run. it made an all profit I mean seven point one million dollars and, and the head of United Artists Theater Circuit was this Egyptian guy named Salah Hassanin who was the scariest guy in the world, <laughs> very intimidating. And we were like, nah. <laughs> so, and, and, but that night, the, the next morning, on Saturday morning, he calls us, and he was like the most charming, wonderful guy in the world. And from then on, he just, he loved us. And, well, there's more to the story later, because we, you know, we, we took the airplane script to him. Well, obviously, yeah. uh, why, why, but when he wanted to do Airplane, but I would imagine so did a ton of other people after the Kentucky. Actually, he could have had Airplane. He could have had the whole thing, but he said, uh, you know, I want uh, uh, this, this Airplane, this script is, is funny, but I want to do, do it within Kentucky Fried Movie 2. So Airplane would be like a 20-minute, it would like, be like Fistful of Yen. So, and we said no. And so, you know, we probably you know, wandered for another year trying to get Airplane made. Even after the success of the first movie, no one was buying Airplane. No, I mean, this is what I've learned in the business, uh, among other things, is that they will only let you do what you've already proven that you can do. So it was it was quite a jump to get off the, you know, we were the successful uh, operators of a small theater on Pico. And, but to go to the next level was, that was a big deal to get Kentucky to be the writers and producers of Kentucky Fried Movie. The next level airplane was, well, we had to direct. What was the budget? Of uh, airplane? Yeah. Three million. Got it. And so how do you get that off the ground? Well, that we took to every studio in town, and and some studios loved the idea. Uh, We took it to uh, Mark Rosenberg at Warner, loved the idea, loved us, and then he read the script, and he said, no, he didn't like the script. So it's just, you know, it goes back to that one question you asked, you know, how do you write it on the page to, you know, to reflect, you know, what you're spoofing, uh, you know... And it all is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, some people thought it was good. Some people didn't. So, uh, But fortunately, there was one guy who believed in this idea from the start. And it was pure. that was pure luck on, for us. And it was uh, Michael Eisner at Paramount who heard about the script at a dinner party and uh, – excused himself from the table in the middle of dinner and called Katzenberg and said, 
uh, there's this airplane script to have these guys in my office on Monday. And so we got the call and, uh, and we were, and, and we were at Paramount on Monday. And I'll never forget that because we were impressed by the carpeting on the floor. <laughs> what was impressive? We a real studio because it was like this rich studio carpet. <laughs> but we'll never forget the carpet at Paramount. <laughs> so there wasn't we a lot of places with carpeting back then? Uh, we just, we never noticed. I think Warner's had more of a uh, a tight weave. And this was, and, and the Paramount carpeting was, carpeting was more lush. You didn't even mention the carpet here. Anyway. Yeah, this would be this would be more on the cheap side. <laughs> this would be more of the Warner Brothers, yeah. This is the Shaw yeah, yeah, we would Costco. Not, yeah, we would not have remarked about this, but yeah. Awesome. All right, so uh, you get it going. He buys the movie, and now you're off, and you're doing Airplane. Yeah, we're doing Airplane. They took us through rewrites. And we, you know, we did many more drafts at Paramount under the auspices of Katzenberg and some of their story people. And, you know, we were very frightened of the big bad studio ruining our precious script. And in fact, they improved it. So we were really grateful to Eisner and Katzenberg. I just can't say enough good about them. People always make fun of studio executives or, you know, say how you know, horrible they are or what Neanderthals they are. But in this case, we were very lucky to have landed at Paramount, which was an all-star team. There was Barry Diller was there, Frank Mancuso, Dawn Steele, uh, uh, Bruckheimer and Simpson were there. So many, so many great people. Tell me one note that Eisner or Katzenberg gave you that improved Airplane. they, They gave us notes. Well, here... One of the big things is, you know, we were we were such purists uh, that we wanted to shoot it uh, on a prop plane because of Zero Hour, the 1957 movie, and in black and white. And Eisner said, absolutely not. It will not. You cannot do this on a prop plane. So we went through every level at the studio and... Everybody said, no, Eisner won't have it. And so finally we had a meeting with the man himself. And we said, we are absolutely set about this, Michael. And, and we, we explained to him why it would be funnier to do it in black and white on a prop plane. And Eisner listened very politely. And we finished our explanation. And he said, well, you know, you guys have really done a great job of explaining this. I really hadn't realized, you know, just how passionate you were about this, these particular points. And you may well be right about it. And you may make this movie, you may actually make this movie in black and white and on a prop plane. And it it could be a big hit, but it won't be at this studio. And so there's this big silence. (laughs) And so Eisner kind of rescued us and he said, but don't, don't give me your decision right away. Um, you guys think it over the weekend. This was on a Friday. And uh, let's meet again on Monday and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it. And so uh, we met again Monday. Of course, we totally caved. <laughs> and he was right. He was absolutely right. So, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's just a good lesson on, at least what the studio system was 
then. Now the studios, I don't think they have people as talented as Eisner and Katzenberg running studios these days. Or it's it's people who make horrible bosses nine, <laughs> you know, whatever stuff they're coming out with now. It's all sequels, remakes, big stars, whatever. Tell me the last comedy movie you saw in a theater where you actually left the theater and you're like, much respect. Oh, amazing. Much better than much respect. It was Bad Grandpa. Bad Grandpa. It was hilarious. And so I was so grateful to this guy, Johnny Knoxville, for having done this. Because otherwise I would think, well, I'm just, you know, I'm old and I'm bitter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get modern comedy anymore. I mean, you could easily think that because I don't like anything. I don't like any sitcoms. I I just, I mean, Larry David, I like. And, uh, so you like Curb, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. You like yeah, Louis. I like Louis C.K. But everything else, it's impossible for me to watch. But uh, although I acknowledge that they're good. Tell me a television show. show that's a comedy that's sort of like on the border. Like it's not Louis for you. It's not Curb. But you're like... Okay, I, well, no, it's, it's just, just everything the, else that I recognize. It's good. I mean, I so I nothing that nothing that's like on the line. Modern Family, for instance, it's it's a good show, but I cannot stand to watch it. But and I don't mean to you know denigrate it because it's just it's great. I wish I had thought of that, but it's just it doesn't make me laugh. Got it. So and, the el- and and my my son is watching uh, Friends right now. He's watching Friends, Friends, Friends. How old is he? He's fifteen. Got it. Uh, he watches South Park, which I think is funny. And of course, I've worked with Matt and Trey, and they're, they're of course, great, and they're really funny. Uh, but uh, the movies that I've gone to see that I I could just count, I can tell you what they are. Tell me, they're uh, Bad Grandpa and uh, Bridesmaids. Okay, I also remember Judd Apatow. Yeah, I mean, but not everything Judd does is something that you know I respond to, but. You know that that was good. I just I thought it was good. What it are the other, what are the other three? There were nothing. There weren't anything. That's it. Bad that Grandpa and Bridesmaid. History, it was Bad Grandpa and well, the rest I haven't seen because I don't really go to movies that much. All right, tell me a comedy movie that you felt the same way about before you ever made a movie. Well, uh, the Woody Allen movies like uh, Play It Again, Sam, and. Uh, Take the money and run. Bananas. We we love those. And I liked, I suppose you know, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein of the Mel Brooks movies. So airplane opens. It kicks ass. Now you guys have money in your pockets. People are calling you left and right. They want to do business with you. Paramount is trying to re up and do more movies with you. And then you start, I believe, with the idea of the Naked Gun movies, and. Tell me how it's possible that you have the vision and belief that you're going to take a professional athlete and make him an actor that's going to score in these movies. Oh, are you talking about the the OJ thing? Yes, I am. <laughs> Let's just this is pre anything happening. Pre anything because people didn't well, put athletes in movies. Yeah, people, that was the thing. I mean. And people put athletes in movies, and they obviously couldn't act. And OJ was in that category because he was in, I mean, he he was in movies, you know, as some, one role or another. And 
even even Zero Hour had Crazy Legs Hirsch from, you know, running back for UW mm-hmm. in that, and he couldn't act. So we just thought that was kind of. <laughs> so you thought it was funny hiring yeah, somebody who couldn't act. Yeah, couldn't act. But yeah. I thought that you. And so we hired Kareem. Now, Kareem, yeah. uh, respect Kareem wherever you are. I love you. You're a Hall of Famer, not an actor. Right. OJ Simpson, you made into an actor. Well, yeah, OJ got better and better. Uh, the first, the first, I think the first Naked Gun I remember was, you know, somewhat of a, you know, I had to squeeze it out of him a little bit, but he was able to do it. But he, he improved with each movie until he, you know, killed people. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing but I, about that, but well, this is what I think about at yeah. times. Like I think about Robert Kraft. Okay, he meets with Aaron Hernandez, the owner of the Patriots, and he meets with him. And he said, "Listen, um, did you do this?" And Aaron Hernandez says, "No, I didn't." Then he gets arrested, and then what happens? I wonder oftentimes, and I don't know why. Maybe it's my sick mind because it's never happened to me. Where you have a friend. Or somebody who's an associate he's been with close with is accused of a horrific crime. Is it the psychology of you as a person uh, to just say, "Okay, I'm never talking to this person again," or are you as a person innocent until proven guilty? And did you talk to him throughout the process until the verdict? Oh no, I, I wasn't that close to him. I mean, I I just the last time I ever saw OJ was. Uh, at the Naked Gun 33 and a 3 rap party, I, I sold him my knife collection, and I never, I never saw him again. That was, that was it. No contact. So, <laughs> but, but, but it's like, I remember when I first heard about it, uh, I kind of felt sick when it was, it was days after that when he was, they started to think he was, you know, he could have been implicated. But you work with him hundreds I, of yeah. days. Could you ever imagine or see any quality in him that could possibly be a person who could ever do that? No. You never think of that, that he would actually, you know, stab to death two human beings. No, you just... Because I'm sure you worked with people who you could think could stab people. Yeah, like Michael Madsen. <laughs> perfectly capable of stabbing people uh, on Bundy Drive. But... Uh, of course, Michael Madsen is a super guy, wonderful guy. He just has this great acting style that makes him look, you know, mean and bloodthirsty. How do you decide whether you guys direct a movie or somebody else directs a movie? Because some you didn't direct and some you did. And it seemed odd to me because I would think you always want to direct with your brother. Right. Well, uh, and Jim know, was directing with you guys. So well, the three we decided of you. to go our separate ways as far as directing after uh, Ruthless People. And so, you know, we wrote the first Naked Gun together. And uh, but I, I directed that on my own. Jerry did Ghost on his own and First Night and Rat Race. And Jim did uh, a movie called Big Business with Bette Midler and then the Hot Shots movies. But you guys, when somebody didn't direct, the other one produced. When somebody well, di- that's sometimes. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with Rat Race. So you didn't. T- so we weren't together. No, we kind of split up. Jerry and I kind of ran an office together, which we called Zucker Brothers for a while. But we did all independent pro- projects. I mean, the the Naked Guns were pretty much me, and Jerry did uh, Ghost and First Night, and produced My Best Friend's Wedding. Got it. 
Talk about basketball and your association with Matt and Trey from South Park and talk about how this isn't fictional. Right. Well, you know, I met Matt and Trey because a lot of these people come to town and and I mean, you know, there's really talented people and they stop off at, at our office, you know, through through one thing or another. And I, I, I that's how I got to know the the Farrelly brothers. And in fact, uh, we started I, I started playing uh, basketball. Uh, just a, a friend of mine and I were playing horse and then we started playing tip horse. We got bored with that. And then we we just evolved the rules to basketball to make it actually baseball rules and played that on my driveway and then other, other people and then when we had two other guys come in Expl- we played exp- two on two explain just just in the shortest time you can because i don't want to waste your time well, you the sh- rules of basketball yeah. you shoot from different areas of the court for a you know like from the free throw line is a single two steps back on a sidewalk is a double on the slant leading to the street is a triple and from the street is a home run and you can bunt from it's a very short side shot from the sideline. And if you tip in a missed shot you, with less than uh, one out or less than two outs, you can get get a double play. So there, you can erase the base runner. So there are imaginary base runners and more and more people started coming into this thing <clears throat> until we had uh, eight teams among whom were, you know, Richard Lovett and Doc O'Connor. Richard Lovett, who is the chairman of CAA, probably. Yeah, he was on it. Uh, the Farrelly brothers were in it. Um, just a, a, a whole a whole bunch of people. Uh, not Matt and Trey yet, but uh, they, they played later. But uh, a lot of people were playing basketball on my driveway. And we would have, we would have a, you know, we'd play three major tournaments with these eight teams and then the top three teams would have a lock on the playoffs and then the everybody else would play a round robin for the for the wild card spot and then we'd close off the street and for and and have this uh, the you know the this what would be the the championship game and uh the 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 final year we closed we had the street closed off and we and uh, two different uh, t- local stations covered it, among whom was Keith Oberman. And so it was incredible. It was just you know, and we played the 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 highlights on video. We had it edit up of the of the of the whole season because we would video every game. Anyway, so we decided we, we should make a movie about this, <laughs> for better or for worse, and that that became basketball, and we. You know, we pitched it to Universal, and they wanted to do it. And uh, and originally, we were considering uh, Chris Farley being in it, and but Matt and Trey came in, and so we decided to to use them. And hey, they also came and they helped write it too. You alluded to something, so I'll just talk about it. Why do you think certain movies don't work, even though there's hundreds of people working on it? including yourself and your every step of the way and you believe in it or else you wouldn't spend that many hours on it. And then it goes out there in the world and people just don't come. What do you attribute that to? 
I, I attribute it to the script. You know, the script, it's really tricky. And it comes down to plot and character. And if you don't absolutely nail that, that plot and character, you won't, you won't have the people having a kind of a, a, a completed, satisfied feeling, you know, when they walk up the aisle. When, you know, Alex Karras once wrote a book, and he, he was athlete, now obscure, but, I mean, he was a, the Detroit Lions Hall of Famer, and he wrote when the Lions would play the Packers, they would beat them the entire four quarters until they looked up at the scoreboard in the end and see that they lost. <laughs> and so that's that's that is what I would kind of liken uh, Top Secret to, and so it was just the greatest movie ever in terms of jokes, but it was unsatisfying as far as you know character and structure and plot. And so poor Val didn't really have a character. That's why it was so difficult to get along with we think during the production because i think he was just felt that he was kind of floating and so i mean we blamed him for many years but it wasn't his fault it was really you know the more we learned about you know what we did the more it was it was the fault of you know top secret it was the script but recently we've recut top secret and it's a lot better it actually has an ending now it needed a joke at the end, and we because we we played it at Sketchfest in San Francisco, the film festival, and got a huge reaction. And it's just, but for a few scenes, it was it was great. It worked great, and the ending could have worked great. And so we fixed it. And so we went to Paramount and we recut it. And uh, I don't think Paramount's going to re-release it. But actually, we're doing the same thing with Airplane now. We're you know, this week we're recutting the second half of Airplane because only because these movies still play in front of live audiences and they're still they're still funny. So we've we've played Naked Gun and and that's still funny. Airplane and Top Secret. Those are the and and we're going to uh, show. I think in the fall we're showing uh, Ruthless People. Awesome. So tell me about scary movie and your association with Keenan Ivory Wayans and how it all came together. Oh, well, I, I don't have any association with uh, Keenan, except that we had lunch once and he's a lovely guy. And, you know, he just always complimented me and said that they had, uh, you know, really been influenced by Kentucky Fried Movie and they did, you know, I'm going to get you sucker. And and I've, I've always been a fan of, of their stuff. And they did the first two scary movies and I think the the second scary movie was troubled because uh, and not as successful probably I, I don't know the story because I'm not really in contact with those guys but I think the studio you know forced them probably to do you know meet deadlines uh, forced them to do a script a certain way and I, I don't I don't know that it was their fault but in any case when they when it came time to do Scary 3, uh, they, I think that they didn't negotiate with, with uh, the studio, instead opting to do a movie with Joe Roth at uh, Revolution. And I think that angered the studio, and so they called me. Uh, the studio did. And this is, you know, independent of the Wayans. They asked me to, to do Scary 3, and... 
at the time I was, you know, basically in director's jail ever since uh, basketball. And I had done one movie for the Weinsteins, for Bob Weinstein, which was an Ashton Kutcher movie. I think it's the only Ashton Kutcher movie to flop. And so, and and but he said, but Weinstein wanted me to direct Scary Three. So I said, sure. You know, where's the script? And so, why did he give you the shot when you were in director jail and everybody else wasn't giving you the shot? Actually, you know, Bob Weinstein is a guy who. Well, first of all, he didn't blame the uh, the failure of the Ashton Kutcher movie on me, and and uh, he said he said you're he told me you're a better director than your material, and so he never blamed me for it, and he was just always always nice about that, and he doesn't care about what you've done or uh, your politics or anything else. He just he's he's a guy that cares about the bottom line. Of you know, can we make a good movie? Not a good movie. Can we make a successful movie? And uh, so he called me, and he didn't care that maybe he even liked basketball. I don't know, but uh, he he had he had confidence that I could do it, and I was of course willing to do it because I was I, I had just been through like I had gone I was set to do a Rob Schneider movie. And I was two weeks away from getting on a plane to go to New Zealand for that. And uh, I wasn't all that excited about doing that, but that was canceled. So I was, I was available and, uh, and, and Weinstein called. And so, and I got, I was able to get uh, Proft again on the show and then uh, Weiss to produce and Craig Mason to also write. And we had a great team. And so we did two really really uh successful movies with with bob and talk about getting the shot to do something when things weren't necessarily going well and and a lot of times it's like it's hard enough to get that shot but then to get a, a shot to produce something that's nowhere even near your lane which is what happened with what i consider to be a really good movie phone booth oh yeah so here you are, you're a comedy guy your whole life. How does anybody give you the keys to the kingdom or get you involved with something that's a drama? Well, this was, see, after I was, uh, had Zucker Brothers with my brother, Yeah. then uh, our universal deal ended and I went in with the head of our company whose name is Gil Netter. Of course. And uh, you know Gil. Yes. And uh, Gil and I had a company called Zucker Netter, and Gil found a phone booth and Walk in the Clouds. And uh, we worked on that. We worked on, you know, draft after draft of phone booth. But you're not, but you're, you've you, you never written the drama. Well, but but there's so many things. That I know hold, you say that dramas were the things that inspired right. your. Comp- no, it's just there's certain things about. I mean, I'm a fan of drama, and I, I think I could direct it if I wanted to. I could direct a drama if I could, you know, get myself to be serious for ten minutes. But like, you know, my favorite movies are not comedies, really. But it's like, it's The Godfather one and two. Those are my favorite movies. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I'm, whatever the movie is, it's, it comes down to character and, and structure and plot. And so I know enough about that. 
to be able to do that. And we had a really good writer, and Joel Schumacher was the director. Of course. Yeah. He directed his first film, I believe. Do you remember what this was? I hope I get this right. Now, I don't know anything about film history. I'm. Remember the movie DC Cab? Yeah, I remember. I never saw All those it. comedians in there. But so what's it like as a director? How, tell our audience, what's the difference between directing a comedy? I know you didn't direct Phone Booth. Right. But is there some fundamental difference for directing a comedy than there is a drama? Or is it all the well, same I, to you? I, I think... I think you're directing a drama is much easier, I would think, because you don't have to. It's in in uh, in comedy you can't fool anyone. I mean, you can on TV because you have a laugh track, or or you have people just in their homes. But in uh, in theatrical comedy, you're you're out there. If it's not funny, it's really embarrassing because you have an audience there, and you can you can tell that no one's laughing. So. It's just it's so technical. It really is. And just and the timing and the uh you know the the camera angles, you just have to use everything. It's it's I think it's a lot more complicated. And and to direct spoof is easier than being able to just turn the camera on Adam Sandler or, you know, Robin Williams or, or, or Jim Carrey or any of these people who are just, you know, funny. They're just, they just, you can just, that's what we call a switch flipper when you can just flip the camera on and Jim Carrey does his stuff. I mean, there's not too much you need to do, but for the style of spoof comedy that we do, all, all the everything has to come from really behind the camera. It's just all it's all very technical and it's all serious actors. And you know the timing has to be right and the and the dialogue has to be right and it, it just has to be perfect. So it's just harder. Although I'm you know I'm saying this not having ever directed a drama, but and I'm not saying that Coppola's job was easy. <laughs> <laughs> the Godfather. No, but I hear you. All yeah. right, final roundup. I'm going to do a little word association. I'm going to mention a name of somebody and just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, anything. Weird Al Yankovic. Naked gun. And, and he's also a dad at the school that, that my kids go to. <laughs> <laughs> so you found them at the school and cast them? We found, no, this was way before kids in school. But he... Um, he knew he was a friend of uh, a producer, Bob Weiss. So Bob Bob Weiss would say, "Can can you get? Do you have a uh, any any uh, bit for Weird Al to do?" And so we cooked up that thing in in Naked Gun, which is just a great joke, one of my favorite jokes. And so then we were sure to put him in every movie since then. And he's just such a nice, nice guy. He's just like there's no. There's no edge to weird. I mean, he's just, he's amazingly funny, but he's just nice. He's a nice boy. Anyways. Dennis Hopper. Oh, God, Dennis Hopper. My, do you want one word? You can say anything. <laughs> you can say a story. We can say so anything. So I directed him in what American Carol. American Carol. And, well, well, two things. I, I, I told him that he had to 
sit a certain way and with a gun in his hand with his back to the he played a judge and he said i why why are you why is why are you making me sit this way i should be up on the you know behind the judges bench you know he was kind of an irascible fuck but and so i said okay yeah do that and he was right you know so so he's <laughs> Sometimes these people are right, you know, so, and then, and then he's doing, but, but one thing I do insist on is no pauses. And you could ask Michael Madsen, I've had famous battles with Michael Madsen uh, about, you know, do it again, but don't pause between the and and the the, you know, that's, and because of the comic time and has to, so I did a, a reading for him. This is how I want you to do it, Dennis. I just did it right there. You know, bad acting. Gave him a line reading. uh, Yeah, but he interpreted it as a line reading. And so, and he says, I haven't gotten a line reading since I did. You know, he mentioned some movie 20 years ago. Haven't gotten a line reading from a director. I said, it's not a... Not giving you a line reading, Dennis. I'm just, you know, forget it. You know, like, <laughs> you know what can you do? So I just, I didn't like him very much, and uh, and then, but then when we came to say goodbye, he was all smiles and yeah, great, nice working with you, David. <laughs> Everybody, this is this is Hollywood. This is the movies. Everybody, Jenny Jenny McCarthy, Jenny McCarthy, wonderful, just nicest person ever. And uh, yeah, she she was just great. And and uh, what can I say? And then I think I directed her in two movies. There were two things that we did. I can't remember what they were. One was basketball. Priscilla Presley. Oh, the sweetest person ever. And you just and what a surprise that she's just so sweet. You know, she's just when you think of what Priscilla Presley must be through. Well, she must have an edge and be hip and. All this stuff, but she's really like someone that would have lived next door to me in Milwaukee. Charlie Sheen. Charlie, what it was like driving a Lamborghini. Directing Charlie was such a pleasure. And believe me, I'd want to say something bad about him, but I can't. There, there is nothing bad except that he smoked on the soundstage. And if if I ever did a whole movie with him, I say Charlie, you gotta you know use a vapor cigarette or something. But it. It really made me sick, all that cigarette smoke. But he's so good. He's he's just there's he and Leslie Nielsen are the best. Kelsey Grammer. Also great guy. And uh I think I just did American Carol with him. I, I don't think and we always wanted to do another movie together. And he's also become a personal friend. So that was one of the few I actually hung out with. The Farrelly brothers. Oh, the Farrellys I met way back in 1984 when I knew uh, their writing partner's sister and she gave me their script and I kind of eye-rolled and said, I'll read it. And it turned out to be Dumb and Dumber. And I thought, this is great. And this was years before. So finally he gets it going and Pete has never directed and he's he's been on the on the basketball team and i didn't even realize this is pete pete Farrelly on my driveway he was just this kid who was a he was a funny guy and a funny writer and uh so um he 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 i remember he wanted to he had never been on a movie set before like like us before kentucky fried movie he just wanted to know what it was like so he, um 
he was on the set with us on for a week on uh, scary uh, no on the na- last naked gun and so, uh, yeah. finally Bette Midler Bette Midler very nice she was just so talented and because uh, you know is. I don't believe you worked with that many people who were a star as a musical artist. Yeah, but she's also an amazing comedian actress. And she actually hated herself in um, Ruthless People. For some reason, she didn't like it or didn't, it was embarrassed about something. But years later, we met again at, there was a day at Disneyland when everybody brought their kids. And she said, you know, I wanted to tell you, this is, Ruthless People is my, the, the best movie I ever made. So that was nice to hear from her. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me your greatest disappointment in show business and how you turned it into something positive. Well, the first greatest disappointment was Top Secret when that was released. And the second greatest disappointment was Basketball. Just shocked because I thought those movies were so great. And then it just, you know, just flopped. And and uh, and how I how you resolve it? I mean, you just you know, it's like getting out of prison. You just have to dig your tunnel and just escape somehow. And it's very difficult. It's it's as hard as starting into the movie business in the first place is overcoming a flop. Is it a psychological thing where you go out into public and you start taking meetings and you know the elephant in the room is there and yeah, that big flop, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I took a lot of meetings and, you know, and then, you know, tried to get things going, producing, you know, Gil Netter was a big help. Like Gil would cook up these ideas and like he cooked up an idea. We're going to do, uh, smoking the bandit, a remake with all black people. And so <laughs> we go into a meeting at Warner brothers and, you know, I, years later I went to Warner brothers and one of the young executives said, you know, I was at that meeting. <laughs> when you pitched us smoking the bandits because of what I said, uh, because halfway through the meeting, because I was just I wanted to produce it. It wasn't something I was you know passionate about. And Gil, Gil is always the salesman, so he said, and David is going to direct it. And so we're there with the Wu Tang Clan and all their bodyguards because they were going to be in it. And pretty intimidating. And so uh, everybody, like, I was like a deer in the headlights. And I said, everybody turns to me, like, Dave, you're going to direct this? I said, well, I've never directed a Negro movie before. And so, and there was this, there was this sucking sound, you know, where everybody said, when did he really say this? And so that, but everybody cracked up. And so, and people, people still come up to me and ask me about that and about the horse that we had. We, you know, a friend of mine from New York, we, we uh, put a, a mare in full so we can name the horse. And we named the horse All Pink and ran the horse at Belmont just so the – and we told the jockey, don't bother winning the race. Just you – know, we, we, we named the horse All Pink. And so he said, don't bother winning the race. Just run her on the rails. So we get the call, and it's all pink on the inside. And, so, <laughs> and, <laughs> and this was the first of three horses. There was – all pink, then AWL pink and old pink. And we finally got the call on the third horse. It was like it took eight years and about, you know, $30,000 to do this joke. 
<laughs> Anyways, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> what's your what's your proudest moment in show business? You know, my proudest moment had to be, you know, we we did air we we finished airplane and you know we you know the first preview was a disaster we you know Katzenberg gave us a pep talk and we recut the movie we played it at um at uh UC Davis and it was uh it worked because the second half was a flop when we we showed it for all the executives at Paramount what was wrong with the second half it was just slow it was too slow and it just and I, I played the the next morning I played the audience reaction back uh, on tape and I realized that everything got a laugh it was just too far apart and this kind of comedy depends on on pace and so that was like one of the happiest moments when that worked but it was true that every first preview was a disaster including all the naked guns including just every movie the first preview and especially uh scary movie three which was one of the best movies i ever did was a complete disaster the first preview we went back and we reshot for two weeks well one of the things i i want to say before i get to the last question there's a, a word of advice that i always give every young filmmaker and i don't know why more people don't do it and one of the most amazing things you can find, if you're on a Skype with somebody and you want to show them your short film or something like that, you say, go to YouTube and type it in and play it. I'll just wait here while you watch the three minutes or whatever. And they're blowing it up on their computer screen to watch your short film. But what they don't realize is that you can see their reaction just right here looking into the camera watching the film and you can see how they react to it and my advice for every young filmmaker out there if you're doing a short film and invite some people over your house who you don't even know some you know but invite people you don't know or friends of friends of friends and put a video camera on top of the flat screen tv and press play when you press play for the movie and then play back the movie and their reaction side by side and you will know immediately if you have enough laughs per minute to have a movie that's going to sustain and make an extraordinary impact on people and you knew enough to oh yeah we we always did that we recorded the audience reaction in audio and in later years we actually had a camera on the audience so we could see if if they even smiled at something <laughs> sometimes we needed to keep that stuff in <laughs> you're running out of material awesome last question what advice do you give for the young person uh, somewhere in the world in whatever profession they're in in your case in wisconsin uh growing up there and just doing your own little things and creating your own little theater in the back of a bookstore going nowhere fast but something's happening what advice do you have for a person your side of the business to become the producer the director the writer that you become to get from that point to the highest levels that oh, you've yeah. gotten to uh sure uh and, and also yeah. i just want us to do a second question for an artist too because you've cast so many different artists what does it take 
to be a great artist, to start from, you know, somebody, because you've given a lot of people shots who never did anything, and some of them performed in your movies and became big stars and others didn't. And what would your advice be for the person in front of the camera as well as behind it? Quit now, you'll never make it. <laughs> That's seriously, quit now, you're never going to make it. And, and the reason why I say this is that, I mean... <laughs> Here, the other half of this advice is if you can ignore this advice, you're halfway there. <laughs> so, I mean, and the reason I say it is I don't want to be responsible for encouraging anyone. It's just it's because it's impossible. And it's like we 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 never had a uh, an exit strategy or a escape plan or people would say, what were you guys going to do if you didn't make it? You know, after we loaded up the U-Haul truck, we committed to, we quit our jobs, we moved out to L.A., and, and the truth is we never had a plan. We just, we were so headstrong and so confident that, that we would make it. And when I hear people say, well, I'll give it a couple of years and, you know, or for directing, acting, whatever is writing, and see if I make it, I don't think those people are really going to make it because you just... You have to, you know, you really have to commit to it. If you're around, you you just have to hang around and love it. You have to love waiting on tables if that's what it takes for, for 40 years. Look at, what do you think um, Carol O'Connor did for, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years until he got all in the family? He just, he got bit parts. And then late in life, he just hit it big. He just, you know, there was the role that came in that was right for him. And often it's it's not a, a measure of if you're good or bad, but if you're just right for it. I mean, John Hamm is brilliant as Don Draper, but I mean, he was maybe 10% lucky that a show like that showed up for him. Uh, other people make their own luck. I think uh, Sylvester Stallone w wrote Rocky and, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, very talented, uh, you know, has really made his own breaks. Uh, you have to now it exists the the possibility for you to make your own video. That it's much easier than it was when I started out because the you know the stuff was really expensive. Now you can do stuff as you said on your cell phone, um, but but you have to. I think. More than anything, it's persistence, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't advise anybody to to keep on trying just because it's so impossible. It's and you but you have to love doing it, and I you just have to be headstrong, I think, and just and do and not accept no for an answer. And but my advice still is quit. You'll never make it. That's because I don't want to be responsible for encouraging anyone. Is that clear, Barry? David Zucker, <laughs> you are crystal clear. This has been amazing. And believe it or not, this podcast will encourage many, many people to get into this business, but also. <laughs> but not because of me. I, I didn't. Uh, no, no, me, no. They'll, they'll, me, yeah, it's, it's a, give an assumed name. They'll blame it on me. All right. Okay. Good. They'll blame it on me. All right. No, it was wonderful. I'm so, so, so grateful to you. Thank you so okay, much. This was fun, Barry. Thank you. And as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.